Let's open up Acts chapter 17. Beginning in verse 16, this is the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city of Athens was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish, therefore, to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all humankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, uh, we believe that what we just sang about you is true, that you are holy. There is no one like you. There is none beside you. And God, we need you to open up our eyes, open up our eyes in wonder to behold the mysteries of your word, to to behold the things that you have said, the things that you've inspired by your Holy Spirit for us, your people, to hear. We pray that you would do just that, that you would open up our eyes, open up our ears, our minds, that you, Holy Spirit, by this teaching would convict, that you would encourage, that you would comfort. God, in whatever way we need to hear your word, we, we ask that you would do that in our hearts. And we also ask that your promise would be true, which it always is, that your word will never return void. Do with it what you seek to accomplish. We pray this all 
In the name of our King, Jesus Christ, amen. Some of you don't know this. Some of you do. I, I went to school at uh, Vanderbilt University in Nashville. It's really interesting that the school was built in 1870, 1873, immediately following the Civil War. And it, it's an interesting story of how the, the campus came to be, the school came to be. The, the maker of the church or the person to first put down money for the building of the, the university was a man named Cornelius Vanderbilt. And it's, it's funny, Vanderbilt was close to death, and he was told by a friend that your soul is in eternal danger. You have to give back in some way. So he gave away a million dollars, gave it to some people in Nashville, built a school in his honor, and the rest is history. And if you've been around Vanderbilt, it has a, a really rich history. They had 50, uh, this is just the history of the people who have gone to Vanderbilt, 54 members of the U.S. Congress, 18 foreign ambassadors, 13 governors, eight Nobel Prize winners, two vice presidents, two Supreme Court justices, and one pastor. <laughs> From what I hear, he's okay, too. And when you walk on campus, I mean, you feel that rich history, everything about it. You feel this history. There's cobblestone walkways, like manicured lawns. The, the central building of the whole campus is called Kirkland Hall. It's six stories high. It's made out of red brick, really old school red brick. And it's got this Gothic architecture and Victorian architecture kind of mixed into one. You can also, when you step on campus, you can feel the academic rigor of the place. The campus is in the heart of the city, but it's dead quiet. When you're in the middle of the campus, you can't hear anything. It literally felt like you were in an ivory tower. People really were separated and secluded from the busyness of life to devote their time to reading books and writing papers. You felt that everywhere you went. It just screamed academic prowess and cultural influence. But you felt alongside that was something else. Alongside the history and the prowess, and the influence, you also felt how morally deceived and spiritually dead the campus actually was. Such an irony. Here's this magnificent institution. I mean, you feel it everywhere, on the surface, impressive, sophisticated, accomplished. But when you peel back a layer and go a little bit deeper, just one layer deeper, it felt dead, it felt hollow, devoid of any real spiritual life. Holistically speaking, it was bankrupt. The statistics borne this out as well. In fact, they had studies of mental health of students on campus, and they focused in on just the medical students. And the medical school is supposed to be kind of the flagship school of Vanderbilt University. And studies found that a quarter of the students who were in the medical school suffered from depression and anxiety. And one in five had admitted to abusing alcohol and drugs in order to alleviate stress, the stress that they felt just from being on campus at the school. One professor who kind of led this study on the mental health of these students, speaking about mental health at Vanderbilt, he said, quote, unfortunately, we're going in the opposite direction. There is a perfect storm of faulty existing structures and massive levels of current stressors on campus. It's such an irony. On the surface, historic, affluent, academics, 
influence, culture, but peel off a layer and you just see it's going in the opposite direction. Spiritually speaking, they're bankrupt, void, dead. The last time we left Paul, Paul has really become like the central figure in the book of Acts written by a man named Luke. The last time we left Paul, he was at the ends of the earth. He was teaching the message of Jesus, starting new churches throughout the Roman Empire. He was witnessing to Jesus as Jesus had told his church to do. We remember at the beginning of the book of Acts, and we've returned to this text over and over, Jesus gave his church a very specific mission. His very last words were these. He said, you, my disciples, my followers, my church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. First in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and ultimately you'll find yourselves at the ends of the earth. It's where we left Paul last week. He's at the ends of the earth. He's in northern Greece And in northern Greece, he found himself in these two cities, Thessalonica and Berea. But it was the Thessalonians who agitated Paul so much because Paul's teaching was so clear. It was so direct. It was so pointed. They agitated Paul to the extent where he had to flee from northern Athens and, or sorry, flee from northern Greece. And he's found sanctuary here in Athens at the beginning of Acts chapter 17, verse 16. And as Paul arrives in Athens, notice what he saw. Paul's waiting for Timothy, he's waiting for Silas, his companions, to come and meet him. And we read that Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. In Athens, Paul finds himself in a city that's, it's a lot like Vanderbilt. Rich history, cultural influence, intellectual life. Athens, after all, on the surface, it's thriving, right? It was the home of poets and philosophers, cultural artifacts, art, statesmen. It was the home of Socrates, Pythagoras. You remember his theorem? Me neither. (laughs) It was home to Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great. Yet... Paul's spirit's provoked within him. He he feels this tension on the surface. Okay, yeah, it, it seems good, but peel back a layer. Spiritually speaking, this city is moving in the wrong direction. The text says everywhere he looked, he saw the city is full of idols. He looks over here, he sees a temple to this God. He looks over here, he sees a shrine to that God. Over here are statues to Zeus, and there's one to Hermes. There's images of Apollo and Mercury and Neptune in the Parthenon, which was at the center of the city. In the Parthenon, there was a 45-foot-high statue of Athena made of gold and ivory. Athena was the goddess Athens was named after. It was so large, the story was that you could see Athena from 40 miles away. That's how prominent idolatry was in this city. Everywhere Paul looked, he saw idol after idol after idol, false god after false god after false god. And his spirit is provoked because they don't know the true God. Surrounded by gods, they don't know the true God. It's a vibrant, religious city, but in reality, it's going the opposite direction. Do you see the irony? It's kind of an apt description of the United States of America in the 21st century too, isn't it? We're a powerful and prestigious society. We still have the highest GDP of any nation that's ever existed, but still compared to other 
societies today, still highest GDP per capita, no other society throughout human history. If you were to go and ask somebody in the Middle Ages, can you imagine a time where people will make this much money and have this much wealth? And we're just talking about average Americans, people like us, they would have no framework, no concept for that kind of wealth. We're home to some of the world's most prestigious and renowned universities and colleges, the most prestigious. It can be argued Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Northwestern, Brown, and the University of Kansas. <laughs> Chad Donahoe said he'd pay me five bucks if I said that. <laughs> we have the world's strongest military. You realize we spend three times more money on our military on a yearly basis than the next closest country in spending. $90 billion a year, sorry, $900 billion a year we spend on our armed forces. The next country that comes closest is China, $292 billion a year. Prestigious, affluent, and we're religious on top of it. It's not a popular term to say that we're religious, so let's call it spiritual, right? We're a spiritual culture. Statistics are a bit dated, but this comes from a Pew Research data set. The data set says around 80% of Americans say they believe in God. 74% of Americans say religion is very important in their lives. The same percentage, 74% of people in the U.S. say they pray at least daily. Which is interesting, they pray a little bit more than me. This is a telling statistic. 71% of those surveyed said at least once a week they felt spiritually at peace and felt a sense of well-being with God. We don't have a problem with God in general as a society, as Americans. That's not a problem with us. But under the surface, peel back a layer. Do we know the true God? Ask anyone. They believe in God. Of course, we're... we're from America, we believe in God. Generally, as a concept, of course we believe in God. But do we know the God? The God who created us and calls us to live every part of our life for his glory and for his purpose, making him the center and the foundation of everything we do as human beings. That God. The God who supernaturally works miracles and powerfully gives us new life. The God who parted the Red Sea, rained bread down from heaven, brought water from a rock to quench the thirst of his people, brought down the walls of Jericho by the shouts of his people, and rained fire and sulfur on his enemies. Do we know that God? The God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in a perfect relationship of love and mutual outpouring and giving. The God who commands human events and thrones and dethrones kings and princes at his will. The God who rebukes evil and darkness, casting out demons, overcoming powers of spiritual darkness. The God who's directing every detail of human history and directing every minor detail of our daily existence. The God who is so close and so personal to each and every one of us that he says he knows the number of hairs on your head, the God who created the galaxies and has a particular specific name for each and every one of them, the God who's supremely forgiving, supremely merciful, supremely gracious, and supremely loving, and 
supremely just, supremely righteous, supremely holy, supremely awesome and magnificent, the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchanging, unyielding in his character, who commands humanity to obey his will and obey his divine law because that law is a reflection of his perfect goodness and character. The God who became a man born of a virgin in the first century, the God who was willing to become a finite human being, to be born as a carpenter's son, and then to be publicly crucified, mocked, and betrayed by humanity because of our rebellion against God, the God who now lives personally and truly inside every human believer, the Holy Spirit, who now empowers human beings who trust in Jesus to become more and more like Christ, the God who will one day judge the living and the dead for every careless deed carried out, the God who, as we speak, is worshipped and adored by every creature in heaven, worshipped and adored by every angel in existence as they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Do we know that God? We're spiritual. We believe in a God. Pray to a God, say God's important in our lives, feel at peace and a sense of well-being with God in general. What about when you peel back a layer? The Athenians, they're they're literally making up gods. Literally making up gods, idols, they're everywhere. A God for everything and every circumstance and every region. And we think, that's so silly. How could could they do that? It's so odd. I can't believe they would do that. But Don't we do the same thing? I'd wager if we were to go ask a hundred Americans on the street, who is God? I'm pretty sure we would get a hundred different definitions of who that God actually is. We, We think it's silly to create gods, but we create gods naturally out of our imagination, our existence. We think God is one way, and when the Bible says something different, we say, no, that, that's not my God. I don't believe in that God over there. I believe in this God. It's a lot like that movie came out about a decade ago. It was based off that 1974 book, Stepford Wives. Remember the Stepford Wives? There were men at control of the city, and they kind of created this campaign to kind of brainwash all the women to be kind of customized wives for these men. Wives that they were comfortable with, wives that they defined, they customized, they created, wives that they thought up all on their own that would suit them. That's the kind of God that we have in America, isn't it? A step for God. Sure, we don't make gods of stone, gold, silver, but we have no problem imagining our God that we define, we create, we're comfortable with, that we've thought up all on our own. All the while, we don't know the true God. That's why John Calvin, he's a 16th century thinker, pastor, writer. He said, quote, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. What he meant was we don't have to make gods of stone and gold. No, we, we just naturally make up a God that we're comfortable with, a God that suits us, a God that we customize, a step for God. And Paul's spirit, he's in Athens, he sees all this, his spirit's provoked, there's this tension because Athens, though they're religious, though they're spiritual, the city is full of idols, they don't know the true God. Everywhere he sees under the surface, they're going in the wrong direction and they don't know it, they don't know the true God. 
And notice what his response is to this. Verse 17. Notice what Paul says as a response. First we see verse 17. That Paul, after seeing that the city was full of idols, reasoned with them in the synagogues, with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He tells the Athenians about the true God. He tells them about Jesus, which is interesting. They believe in gods that they've made in their own image. God has said, I'll do you one better. I'm going to send humans, a human, Jesus, to be my image on earth. That's the true God. So he goes and tells them about Jesus, how Jesus is truly God, how he created heaven and earth, how he speaks about his death for our forgiveness by his crucifixion. He talks to them about Jesus who was resurrected from the dead. No other person in history has died, stayed in the grave for three days, and then rose again from the dead to exist forever, except for Jesus. He's the only one. He talks to them about Jesus as the savior of humankind and how there is salvation only in him. He tells them about the true God, the God they do not know. As he's doing this, philosophers overhear him. You see verse 18, that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? They don't understand Paul, not because Paul is unintelligible, but because they're so unfamiliar with what the true God is actually like. So they ridicule Paul. What is this babbler talking about? That, that word babbler, it's the Greek word spermologos. Spermologos. It, it literally means seed picker. And the idea comes from chickens, where chickens would just peck indiscriminately at the ground for any seed that they saw on the ground. They're saying, that's Paul. He's just pecking out ideas, putting them together, and then spitting them out without any coherence, without any sense of unity between it all. He's, he's a babbler. Nobody knows what he's talking about. He's a seed picker. We know what this is like, right? When somebody's talking to you about sports and you actually know sports and you find out very quickly, they don't know about sports. <laughs> or when people talk about science and you're a scientist, but they're telling you stuff that they just saw off the internet seven minutes ago or cars. By the way, if I ever start talking to you about cars, I'm lying. <laughs> I don't know anything about cars. I like to pretend I do. I like to make my mechanic think I'm tracking along with what he's saying, but I have no idea. Well, this truck is a 5.7 liter engine. Ooh. What's that in gallons? <laughs> <laughs> this guy, this guy, Paul, he's a seed picker. He's a, he's a babbler. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But there's others. They start connecting the dots. They're, they're starting to put stuff together. Again, verse 18. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's talking about God. He's talking about Jesus, right? Saying he's God because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And it's these people who then invite Paul, verse 19, to the Areopagus, verse 19, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, the Areopagus, these were folks who were over, uh, over the religious, moral, education, and civil life of Athens. But around the Areopagus, this council, there's also people gathered from throughout the city. Because uh, Luke even says there were people who just spent their whole days going to the Areopagus and listening to the newest ideas. They're, they're curious about these things. It's how they spent their time. 
And notice what Paul did, what Paul said to now this group of Athenians gathered before them. Verse 22, Paul says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let me tell you about the true God. You have all of these gods, but behind all of these gods is a true God. Actually, all of these gods we're going to find out are false. And this is the true God. There's only one, not a myriad of gods, not a pantheon of gods, but a true God. The God you do not know. Let me tell you about him. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And then Paul quotes two of these Greek poets who kind of get this idea already. that They have some knowledge of the true God that some of their Athenian counterparts didn't know. They, they say, Paul, verse 28, one of the poets wrote, in him we live and move and have our being. Some of the other poets said, for we are indeed his offspring. But look back at verse 25. This is key. God is not served by human hands. Verse 25, he says, as though he needed anything. Since God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God isn't served by human hands, served by altars. He's not served by our offerings in some way. This is the fundamental difference between the true God and idols, false gods. You could even say this is the fundamental difference between Christianity and just mainstream general spirituality. Mainstream spirituality says, well, we know what God is like. We give to God a little bit, and he gives back to us. We give God some of our time. We give him a bit of our money. We offer him prayers now and then. We visit church on holy days. We pay our respects and thank him. We acknowledge his existence. We take time to quiet ourselves. We take time to feel his presence now and then. And as a result of us giving to God, he then gives back to us. He looks after us. He gives us inner peace. He helps us out financially. He gives us good health and protection and blesses our family. That's what God is like. You give an offering to Zeus, he doesn't strike your city with thunder. You give an offering to Mars, and he's going to help you in battle. He's going to go and help you defeat that other enemy because he's going to now be on your side. We offer respects and prayers to Poseidon, and he's going to help us navigate a safe journey across the sea because that's always a treacherous thing. It's always kind of scary. In essence, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's what idolatry is. We'll scratch your back, God, and then you in return, you give us something back. That's general spirituality, that's idolatry, false worship, writ large in its garden variety. I'm a Christian and I do this. Because our hearts are full of idols, aren't they? I do this all the time. God, I'll pray to you sincerely and repeatedly. And if I do that, I know you're going to come through. I know you're going to help me out. You're going to help me preach a killer sermon. How's it going, by the way? Do I need to pray harder? 
God, if I do this thing for you, if I have pure eyes, if I have a chaste heart, then I know you're going to keep things peaceful in my house and help my kids succeed. I just know you're going to come through in that way, God. God, if I avoid this sin, because I know you don't like that sin, even though I still kind of like it. I know if if I avoid this sin and I just know that if I kind of bracket that out of my life, then you're going to help me professionally. You're going to help me succeed in this way. I think this constantly. God, if I scratch your back, I know you're going to scratch mine. Paul says that that is fundamentally 180 degrees at odds with Christianity. Idols are served by human hands. Idols need our offerings. Idols need our sacrifices and self-abasement. The true God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's the creator of it all anyway. What could we possibly give God that he himself does not already have? No, he's a giver. He gives freely. He gives us everything, life. He gives us breath. He gives us blessing, even though we don't deserve them. In fact, What the whole emphasis of scripture is, is that we deserve the exact opposite. We don't deserve God's blessing. Paul talks about this in other places. In fact, in a letter that he wrote to a church in Rome, Paul made it very clear. He said, if you want what God deserves, this is what we all deserve. He says the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to everyone because God has shown it to everyone. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So all people are without excuse. You see what Paul is saying here? He's saying... Everyone knows that there is a God. You look at the creation, and right behind that creation, you know there is a divine, all-powerful creator behind it who deserves my worship and obedience. Everyone knows it. You can pretend like you don't know it, but Paul says it's clear to everybody, and everybody, because they know it, suppress that truth, because that truth is a little bit uncomfortable. He goes on and says, For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkening. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's how all idolatry is. All idolatry that uh, doesn't acknowledge the existence of God, it's always couched in, this is sophisticated, this is wise, this is how forward thinking looks. But really what it is, is it's foolishness. And what they do, verse 23, is they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, idols, resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying our heart's a factory of idols. We're, we're built this way to where we know this truth about God, but it makes us uncomfortable, so we suppress that truth about that God. 
And instead, what we do is we make up gods of our own spirituality, our own presumptuousness. We create gods that make sense to us, step for gods. And because of our idolatry, Paul says what we deserve is God's judgment. Because we make gods that are in the image of our own imagination, we deserve his wrath which is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Yet God does not give us that. God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us life and breath and blessing. He was even willing to give his own son to die for our idolatry, to die for our sin, to bear the wrath that we deserve in our place. God so loved us, he gave us his own son so that if anyone should believe in him, the true God, they will not suffer under the wrath of God. Instead, they will have eternal life with the God in his eternal kingdom. The way idols worked is you want a good harvest? Well, Better appease that God by your sacrifices. You want a clean bill of health? Better start making sacrifices and offerings to that deity. You want eternal life? You better start doing good deeds. Because everybody knows that, you know, if your good deeds don't outweigh your bad deeds, then, oh, no, that's not good. You want forgiveness? You better start doing acts of penance. You better show you're truly sorry and, and have contrition for the things that you've done wrong. And you have to give so much back. You have to pay for this offering, dedicate this shrine, fast for this long to show God you're truly sorry. Otherwise, you don't get forgiveness. That's not Christianity. That's not the good news. That's not the witness to Jesus because that's not the true God. It's fake. When my kids want to go to McDonald's, I don't say, well, sure, but first you have to give me a little something. Let's see, you can start by cleaning the showers. Once you're done with that, you can move on to the sink, sweep the floor. While you're at it, get me a Miller Lite from the fridge. Uh, and you don't get to watch what you want today. No Bluey for you. We're watching Harrison Ford movies tonight. <laughs> Once you've done that for me, sure, we can go to McDonald's. I wanted a spicy chicken sandwich anyway. You scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. That's not the true God. It's fundamentally at odds with Christianity. Athens is moving in the complete opposite direction of the true God because God is the giver of every good and perfect gift by his love and grace. He was even willing to give his only son to die in our place and to rise again from the dead, even though we don't deserve it. Our God is a giving God. We can give him nothing that will earn his approval. Instead, God approves of us and then we give willingly as a result. All that God asks, all that he asks in return is that we turn back to him. Come back to him and receive the good gift, the good gifts that he's given us and the free gift that he offers us in Jesus. That's the last thing Paul says. You look at verse 29. The last thing Paul says is, being then God's offspring, he's our father. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. God is not an idol formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, but now, he commands all people everywhere 
to repent. That's what repentance means. Repentance simply means turning back to God. Turn away from idols. Turn away from sin. Turn away from that false God that you made up that you're comfortable with and turn back to the true God. Turn back to him and embrace his son freely given for your salvation. And it's crucial that the Athenians do this and that we do it. And it's crucial that they hear this message because verse 31, Paul closes saying, repent, turn back to God, turn away from idols because, verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Speaking about Jesus, by the man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. But wait, you said, Paul, God, hold on. You said God gives us salvation freely by grace, that he doesn't give us what we deserve. Now you're saying he's going to judge the world by the very one he sent to save us? Which is it? Did Jesus come to save or did he come to judge? And the answer, of course, is both. Both. Because Jesus didn't just come once. He is coming again. He was resurrected from the dead. Not to stay dead, but to live eternally and come again to bring his kingdom in full. A kingdom that will come on the heels of his righteous and perfect judgment. In Jesus' first coming, God the Father sent his son to save us from our sin. To save us from the wrath of God which will be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He sent him to die and rise again in our place for salvation, an undeserved gift of grace from our heavenly father. But in his second coming, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And all those who did repent, who did turn back to Jesus, they will enter into eternal life and fellowship with God. But for those who didn't repent, did not listen to the message of Paul, and Jesus, and his witnesses, his disciples, all those who did not turn back to the true God and embrace his son, they will face the wrath and punishment of God away from the presence of the Lord eternally. Do you want your idol now? Then God says, if you want that, then I will come one day and I will give that to you eternally. If you don't want the eternal God now, what would make you think you would want the eternal God when he comes again? That's what Paul meant when he says he gave them over to their idolatry. What he's saying is you want that idol so bad now. You want a God that you've imagined, you've made up, a Stepford God? Well, you can have him for eternity. And God has given us assurance that this day of judgment is coming. The day's fixed, he says. God has proved that that day is coming by raising Jesus from the dead. You want proof that the day is coming? He gave you proof. In the year 33 AD, when Jesus rose again from the dead, it proved that one day he's coming again to judge the world in righteousness. And you might feel, you might feel spiritually vibrant. You might believe in a God. You might say spirituality is very important in your life. 
You might pray to a God and feel a sense of well-being with that God. And on the surface, those things may very well be true, even though I think you lied a little bit about how much you pray. But if you've not turned back, if you've not repented and turned back to the true God and embraced his son, Jesus Christ, by faith, then under the surface... The surface layer peeled back, you're actually moving in the wrong direction. And Paul's exhortation is repent, for he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. He has given us assurance to us all by raising Jesus from the dead. I'll close on this. I had a friend of mine, uh, we actually went to Vanderbilt together, and we were talking uh, the other day, a couple months ago, and he's a counselor now. I'm a Christian, and so when we talk, somehow always counseling and Christianity get talked about in some form. And, you know, we were talking about how to best care for people. So I'm a pastor. It's something that I like to do. He's obviously a counselor. He cares for people. And I know his heart's in the right place, but we were talking about these things. And uh, he said, you know, I'm careful in my counseling to never tell people that they have to change their mind. In other words, that they don't have to repent. They don't have to turn in their thinking around anything else. And his heart's in the right place. I know kind of what he means by it. But he said, the reason I don't do that is because in that, it's just, it's just flooded with this idea of unkindness. It's just unkind to people. Friends, there's nothing more kind There's nothing more kind than turning back to God and turning to Jesus. There's nothing more kind. Because when we do that, we receive his grace. We receive his love. He walks with us through life. He assures us that he loves us. When we turn back, when we repent, when we embrace the true God, there is nothing kinder that we can do for a person. That's why Jesus' first words of public ministry, do you know what they were? Repent. Turn back to me. Believe in the good news. The good news that God so loves you, he was willing to give Jesus a gift none of us deserve. Repent. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are the true, the living, one and only God of the universe. You, Jesus, are greater than we can possibly imagine. You are more compassionate, more kind, more righteous, more holy, more magnificent than we could ever possibly imagine on our own. And God, We come before you and we confess that there are so many things in our life that we just don't turn to you in order to to live our lives. We don't don't turn to you and we don't make you the foundation of our life. We're, We're much more comfortable with a God that's not you. And Jesus, that being the case, we need you to help us to repent. We need you by your Holy Spirit, whom you promise We need you to to turn our hearts in repentance away from the false gods that come out of us naturally and help us turn to you, the living and the true God, who is a giver of every good and perfect gift.
poured out on us undeserving sinners. Jesus, help us to do that. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.